0: I think we just have to put our money down, sometimes literally, by supporting institutions that are doing independent investigative journalism, and in some cases depending on donations.
1: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contributes tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman program, a TED Talk, The Breach, We Are Here, On the Media, and The Ezra Klein Show.
2: The nation has a new uh, a new issue out that is entirely themed around the media. Katrina, welcome back to the back to the program here.
3: Thank you, Tom.
2: Glad to um, have you with us. So, tell tell us about the the state of the media. What what is the the broad analysis and the and the more detailed analysis that the nation is making?
3: Well, let me just step back for a moment because Donald Trump released uh, sort of a blueprint, the shock and not not much all budget plan today and. My colleague John Nichols has a piece up at the nation.com about how the plans to ravage savage, God, public broadcasting are really going to hurt Trump voters. I mean, we think about public media. You think of maybe Los Angeles, New York, but it's the rural communities in this country which rely, there's a financial lifeline to these stations and offering real news. So The Nation's special issue is predicated on the fact that we are at a perilous moment Uh, for the media. I mean, we have a president who's calling the media enemies of the people. We have structural challenges, newsrooms being hollowed out, FCC commissioner trying to undermine affordable broadband, green light, media consolidation, uh, gut media democracy uh, via the net neutrality provisions. And we got to do better wherever you are on the spectrum. The nation issue argues we got to do better as a media covering President Donald Trump than we did candidate Donald Trump, because your show, Thomas spoken, you know, you've spoken eloquently about how Trump played the media like a Stradivarius. Mm-hmm. Saw media malpractice in the kind of unfiltered, you know, rah-rah coverage of Trump as spectacle. We didn't really learn enough about the issues. And I understand a lot of our politics today has to be emotional and connect, uh, but, there's a you know, we we need to learn more about the politics of this country. So our special issues devoted... To really thinking hard about how media covers President Trump covers this moment, and does so in a way to regain the trust uh, of a public, in a way I would say primarily from a corporate media that has treated politics as a spectacle rather than as bringing people in as um, participants, which you try to do.
2: Yeah, but there is no, there is. No, uh... There are no real structural uh, uh, changes that are being proposed right now. I mean, you know, like, 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 let's revisit the, the Fairness Doctrine. Uh, let's, let's break up some of these giant media companies. You know, conservatives give all this lip service to competition. But the fact of the matter is that in the media landscape in America, there is so little competition that if you're channel surfing just the three cable networks, Fox, MSNBC and CNN, they all go to commercials at the same time. Just like the airlines, you know, if if any of them changes a a fare within, you know, three hours, every other airline has changed the fare. They're operating as monopolies.
3: They're operating as monopolies, privatization, deregulation, are the paradigm. And progressives and Democrats, I think, need to step up uh, and speak out more boldly, lay out more boldly a trust-busting agenda and structural changes uh, to the media. The nation issue does something different, though over the many, many years— John Nichols, the special series we launched in 1996 on the National Entertainment State. We've really laid out structural changes that would level the playing field, make small local media uh, have more, more powerful. This issue is also laying out how independent progressive media could form a infrastructure, independent of power, not complicit with power, but to be more powerful than some of its parts, because you look at the right-wing media infrastructure – And how it's moved the goalposts in this country, I think, in toxic ways so that we are playing on a field of privatization, of deregulation. I think an independent media infrastructure would change the playing field, not necessarily structurally, but if you think about media, its greatest power is to define reality. And that means whose voices are heard, what stories are covered. I think independent media punches above its class weight Think of Amy Goodman at Standing Rock and how that was leveraged into demanding corporate media coverage. The Nation, Mother Jones investigation into private prisons uh, last year, over the last years, led the Department of Justice to close private prisons. They're now reopened. So we need to step up our game and begin that work again. But I think there's a role for an independent progressive media infrastructure to to report honestly, independently, boldly, fearlessly. And uh, that's and, and with the public interest in mind, with accountability uh, for uh, those in power, whatever party, whatever partisanship, corporate, political, those are the criteria by which we should move forward.
2: Yeah, I, I you know, I have colleagues who are right wing talk show hosts who I've gotten to know over the years and, um, you know, in, on occasion traveled someplace with and. Um, I was amazed to hear from from one of them in particular that I've that I've actually gotten to know quite well over the years that and and he's not. Well, actually, Ken Vogel did a piece about this over on Politico about a year and a half ago about how Limbaugh gets four or five million dollars a year in direct subsidies from from right wing, big right wing think tanks. Hannity, it's a couple million dollars a year, you know, in a, a descending order based on ratings. Well, this guy was was. Kind of a B level, you know, he was on a bunch of stations around the country, but they're all smaller stations. Um, cause there's the, like the A team of conservatives and then there's the B team and there's even a C team actually, cause there's so many conservative stations in the country. And, and he pointed out to me that not only does he get a paycheck for doing the show, but that, um, he, all he has to do is show up at any kind of conservative event and, and give a five minute speech and he gets a 10 to 20 thousand dollar honorarium. Uh, if he writes a book he 's guaranteed that they 'll buy enough copies to make it a new york Times bestseller when whenever he goes on any other media if he if he comes on my program there's foundations that 'll write him checks from a thousand dollars to ten um, thousand dollars there is i mean right wing talk show hosts who are making like a sixty or eighty thousand dollars salary as a right wing talk show host in the, in this B level. Are making an additional two, three, four hundred thousand dollars in these additional fees. There is no such infrastructure on the left. I don't. I get a penny from nobody. Um, well, I'm not saying that we should of- sell out the way the conservatives have, but uh, this this reality has not penetrated people's minds.
3: No, and I agree with you. It's not about being mortgaged to some playbook, and I do think a lot of the right wing is. I think it's about sustaining and nurturing an, an infrastructure, a media infrastructure where people can do their work knowing they will be sustained. So that's part of what, you know, we're looking at and we're calling it on people, you know, a decade or more ago, Bill Moyers and a few others looked at, you know, starting a cable channel. Uh, now, you know, MSNBC arose. We could spend some time talking about that. But a truly progressive, independent media cable station would be very powerful, I think. But, you know, what we've seen on the right is, you know, FCC, former FCC Commissioner Michael Copps, who I'm sure you know has been on your show, once said your second issue, your you know, your first issue can be inequality or war and peace. But your second issue better be, you know, media democracy, yeah. because that's how people get their news. And we have seen and our special issue goes into this, the kind of corrosion and distortion of our politics and political debate and discussion by move, you know, moving it rightward and rightward and rightward. Because of this right-wing media infrastructure, which, by the way, is BS about being fair and balanced. It's not. It's about being accurate. It's about being honest about where you stand or sit, but disclosing and being clear about your values while being rigorous about facts and verifiable data. There's a strong piece in the special issue by a man who was editor of South African newspaper in tough, tough authoritarian times, who talks about the danger of this sort of false equivalence or neutrality and the importance of jettisoning this kind of Olympian neutrality, not jettisoning accuracy, but also giving up on this access, pay to play almost in the media. You know, I think some of these anchors who, I mean, the right wing is doing a lot of pay to play right now. Mm -hmm. Independence is vital, but so, as you said, Tom, are people in a progressive community we're funding other things, understanding the importance of media as part of our ecosystem as part of what shapes beliefs and ideas in this country
2: yeah yeah and i'm not I'm not uh, standing around with my hand out i mean we're we're one of the more successful programs on the on the progressive side thank God but, I mean, but punch
3: but let's be honest we all I think punch above our weight you know our weight class because yeah. we can't we don't have the resources now maybe that makes us more innovative more You know imaginative but it is you know it's often a struggle and one wants to see younger generation come in and be part of this ecosystem and i think uh we're doing a conference by the way next week with uh, 60 students from around the country on how to cover movements how to cover uh, this movement moment and we're going to bring some of the best nation journalists to talk about it and these are students who are really engaged who applied we had 400 applications but I think it's about also seeding a new generation to think critically minded, to be independent, to be imaginative, and right. to challenge the kind of policing of the parameters of our debate, which you and I have talked a lot about. I mean, when the healthcare, the sort of, you know, I don't know what to call it, Trump care, or you call it, Tom, Trump care,
4: yeah.
3: uh, when that was rolled out, you got a lot of criticism. The CBO numbers are horrifying. But you didn't get enough discussion of why maybe this country would benefit from Medicare for all, why we should expand that, why it's more cost effective and build on Obamacare's cost saving, because, you know, we're like an outlier in the Western industrialized world. So I think it's those kinds of ideas to be part of our debate uh, that those have been shoved out in fundamental ways because of this right organization our politics and media debate.
5: Five years ago, I had my dream job. I was a foreign correspondent in the Middle East reporting for ABC News. But there was a crack in the wall, a problem with our industry that I felt we needed to fix. You see, I got to the Middle East right around the end of 2007, which was just around the midpoint of the Iraq War. But by the time I got there, it was already nearly impossible to find stories about Iraq on air. Coverage had dropped across the board, across networks, and of the stories that did make it, more than 80% of them were about us. We were missing the stories about Iraq, the people who live there, and what was happening to them under the weight of the war. Afghanistan had already fallen off the agenda. There were less than 1% of all news stories in 2008 that went to the war in Afghanistan. It was the longest war in U.S. history, But information was so scarce that school teachers we spoke to told us that they had trouble explaining to their students what we were doing there, when those students had parents who were fighting and sometimes dying overseas. We had drawn a blank, and it wasn't just Iraq and Afghanistan, from conflict zones to climate change to all sorts of issues around crises in public health we were missing what I call the species-level issues, because as a species, they could actually sink us. And by failing to understand the complex issues of our time, we were facing certain practical implications. How were we going to solve problems that we didn't fundamentally understand, that we couldn't track in real time, and where the people working on the issues were invisible to us, and sometimes invisible to each other? When you look back on Iraq, those years, when we were missing the story, were the years when the society was falling apart, when we were setting the conditions for what would become the rise of ISIS, the ISIS takeover of Mosul and terrorist violence that would spread beyond Iraq's borders to the rest of the world. Just around that time where I was making that observation, I looked across the border of Iraq and noticed there was another story we were missing, the war in Syria. If you were a Middle East specialist, you knew that Syria was that important from the start. But it ended up being really one of the forgotten stories of the Arab Spring. I saw the implications up front. Syria is intimately tied to regional security, to global stability. I felt like we couldn't let that become another one of the stories we left behind. So I left my big TV job to start a website called Syria Deeply. It was designed to be a news and information source that made it easier to understand a complex issue. And for the past four years, it's been a resource for policymakers and professionals working on the conflict in Syria. We built a business model based on consistent, high quality information and convening the top minds on the issue. And we found that it was a model that scaled. We got passionate requests to do other things deeply. So we started to work our way down the list. I'm just one of many entrepreneurs, and we are just one of many startups trying to fix what's wrong with news. All of us in the trenches know that something is wrong with the news industry. It's broken. Trust in the media has hit an all-time low, and the statistic you're seeing up there is from September. It's arguably gotten worse. But we can fix this. We can fix the news. I know that that's true. You can call me an idealist. I call myself an industrious optimist. And I know there are a lot of us out there. We have ideas for how to make things better. And I wanna share three of them that we've picked up in our own work. Idea number one. We need news that's built on deep domain knowledge. Given the waves and waves of layoffs at newsrooms across the country, we've lost the art of specialization. Beat reporting is an endangered thing. When it comes to foreign news, the way we can fix that is by working with more local journalists, treating them like our partners and collaborators, not just fixers who fetch us phone numbers and sound bites. Our local reporters in Syria and across Africa and across Asia bring us stories that we certainly would not have found on our own like this one from the suburbs of Damascus, about a wheelchair race that gave hope to those wounded in the war. Or this one from Sierra Leone, about a local chief who curbed the spread of Ebola by self-organizing a quarantine in his district. Or this one from the border of Pakistan, about Afghan refugees being forced to return home before they are ready, under the threat of police intimidation. Our local journalists are our mentors. They teach us something new every day, and they bring us stories that are important for all of us to know. Idea number two, we need a kind of Hippocratic Oath for the news industry, a pledge to first do no harm. Journalists need to be tough, we need to speak truth to power, but we also need to be responsible. We need to live up to our own ideals, and we need to recognize when what we're doing could potentially harm society where we lose track of journalism as a public service. I watched us cover the Ebola crisis. We launched Ebola deeply. We did our best. But what we saw was a public that was flooded with hysterical and sensational coverage, sometimes inaccurate, sometimes completely wrong. Public health experts tell me that that actually cost us in human lives because by sparking more panic and by sometimes getting the facts wrong, We made it harder for people to resolve what was actually happening on the ground. All that noise made it harder to make the right decisions. We can do better as an industry, but it requires us recognizing how we got it wrong last time and deciding not to go that way next time. It's a choice. We have to resist the temptation to use fear for ratings. And that decision has to be made in the individual newsroom and with the individual news executive. Because the next deadly virus that comes around could be much worse, and the consequence is much higher if we do what we did last time, if our reporting isn't responsible and it isn't right. The third idea? We need to embrace complexity if we want to make sense of a complex world. Embrace complexity, <laughs> not treat the world simplistically. Because simple isn't accurate. We live in a complex world. News is adult education. It's our job as journalists to get elbow deep in complexity and to find new ways to make it easier for everyone else to understand. If we don't do that, if we pretend there are just simple answers, we're leading everyone off a steep cliff. Understanding complexity is the only way to know the real threats that are around the corner. It's our responsibility to translate those threats and to help you understand what's real, so you can be prepared and know what it takes to be ready for what comes next. I am an industrious optimist. I do believe we can fix what's broken. We all want to. There are great journalists out there doing great work. We just need new formats. I honestly believe this is a time of reawakening, reimagining what we can do. I believe we can fix what's broken. I know we can fix the news. I know it's worth trying. And I truly believe that in the end, we're gonna get this right.
1: It's always tough to find great talent while you're hiring. Plus, the whole process can be overwhelming because there are so many places to post your job openings in the hopes of finding the best candidates. Thankfully, you can take all the questions out of it with ZipRecruiter, where you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's what makes them different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you it finds them. That's why 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within just 24 hours without juggling emails or calls to the office. You simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash best of the left. That's ziprecruiter.com slash best of the left. One more time to try it for free, go to ziprecruiter.com slash best of the left.
6: It's become almost a truism that Trump's dealings with the media are Nixonian. What do people mean by that?
7: Right. Uh, Richard Nixon was really the first modern American politician to frame the uh, the the press as uh, in Trump's terms an enemy of the people. You know, he didn't use those terms uh publicly. <laughs> Privately of course he uh did even worse, but he might as well have, right? And the idea that Well, this is how his his vice president put it in a a very famous speech in 1969, that that's kind of a difference between uh, Trump and Nixon. Nixon kind of sent out surrogates to do the really nasty stuff publicly. You know, it was a real big watershed uh, in November of 1969 when Richard Nixon was so angry at all three networks uh, for doing immediate uh, response to a big Vietnam speech he did in November of 1969 that was the famous silent majority speech that he just decided it was time to go nuclear. And it was actually Pat Buchanan's idea to send out Spiro Agnew, who was this vice president who really had no public profile whatsoever until this point. But he gave this speech that, that basically got covered live. Uh, He guilted the, the the white house guilted all three networks into covering it live. Right. Mm -hmm. So using that sort of manipulation, Uh, of the press in order to attack the press. And uh, he criticized, and I'm quoting here, uh, a small band of network commentators and self-appointed analysts, the majority of whom expressed in one way or another their hostility to what he had to say. It was obvious that their minds were made up in advance, which, of course, wasn't obvious. Now I want to make myself perfectly clear I'm not asking for government censorship or any other kind of censorship. I'm asking whether a form of censorship already exists when the news that 40 million Americans receive each night is determined by a handful of men responsible only to their corporate employers and is filtered through a handful of commentators who admit to their own set of biases. So this was you know, kind of brewing for a long time. You know, the coverage of the riots at the Democratic Convention the previous summer, you know, were crit- f- criticized in, in, in much the same terms. But wasn't that a clever formulation, right? That Because it's the there's media- certainly a
6: grain of truth in it that there really is right. a
7: corporate elite and that it is very cozy with power brokers. Right. And, you know, this is, uh, again, the, the big difference between uh, how the Nixon White House did things and the Trump White House did things was – The Nixon White House was able to frame things that just got so much more leverage uh, from this kind of anger. But with Richard Nixon, of course, it goes uh, back quite a bit further than that. He was always angry that so this so-called media elite sided with uh, Alger Hiss, right, who was the very distinguished State Department official who uh, was accused of being a communist in the 1940s. And Richard Nixon, uh, as a member of the House on american Activities Committee, investigated him, uh, eventually uh, got him to commit perjury. Remember, the perjury yeah. trap is a big one. And so the Hiss-Chambers case was kind of like the the big political melodrama of the 1940s. And he had decided way back then that uh, the liberals and the press and the liberals and the press and the press who were liberal uh, would never forgive him for that. And, you know, even though. You know, he in a lot of ways throughout his career was uh, a media darling. Uh, Certainly uh, in the pages of the Los Angeles Times, which was a very powerful newspaper in Southern California where he came up. But in 1962, when he lost the governor's race, they covered him in a much more objective uh, way. You know, they covered him basically fairly instead of leaning on the scales in his favor. And he was so disillusioned by this that he gave a very famous speech after he lost in 1962. Uh, he was drunk. <laughs> he had just you know, lost the governor's race two years after losing the presidential race. And his press secretary begged him to go down and at least give some kind of concession statement, which is supposed to be gracious. But instead he very famously said, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore because gentlemen, this is my last press conference. Uh, I hope the press recognize that they have a right and responsibility if they're against the candidate, give him the shaft, <laughs> which was very foul stuff for the time. But also recognize if they give him the shaft, put one lonely reporter on the campaign who will report what the candidate says now and then. Uh, so you know he was on to something, right? He was yeah. on to something that a lot of people uh, in the 1960s, in which you know the, the 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 fashionable way the wind was blowing was in the direction of these sort of Basically, movements of liberation. Then a lot of ways were challenging the ways of thinking of Middle America, and that the press seemed to be on the side of these liberation movements, which was very alienating for the people that Richard Nixon labeled the Silent Majority, who really felt condescended to, uh, that their values were not considered moral anymore. That the moral people were the people who were, you know, causing these disruptions. So he had uh, something very potent, and of course, he wasn't the only person during this period who was uh, making these gestures, but he was the best and he was the most effective and he influenced basically every conservative politician since.
6: And it is interesting how that kind of rhetoric of condescension comes in. It's so frustrating and potent because there are fundamental moral disagreements in our society and yet one side has decided that criticism is automatically condescending.
7: Right. And in a, in a way, this gets to some very kind of basic kind of uh, almost cognitively ingrained uh, ways of thinking that determine whether you're a left wing person or a right wing person. Right. I mean, if the press in an enlightenment based society is all about telling truth to power, it's a disruptive force. Right. And if you're a person who, you know, values stability over a disruption, uh, then you're going to feel condescended to by people who think that your very longing for stability is somehow morally suspect.
6: But how do we bring that out into a healthier kind of dialogue in which people can say, well, I value stability, and that's a thing, and I'm prepared to argue for it, and you're going to argue for a change in confrontation, and we can actually exchange ideas productively instead of them feeling like they're being condescended to?
7: Well, I think in a sense, it's structurally very difficult, if not impossible, uh, for people who – Basically believe, you know, all is well in the world and have a Panglossian view of uh, certainly America to be thinking about a mode of civil uh, of, of citizenship and patriotism, which uh, demands more accountability for America. And to me, uh, the lesson for uh, journalists, for reporters, for commentators, is, as I always put it, you know, tell the truth as you see it without fear or favor and devil take the most and basically put up the fact that there's really no way that if you're doing your job, right, you're not going to get that charge hurled at you and not to be, you know, not to negotiate with yourself and not to be intimidated by that fact that that's just a natural part of being a, a truth teller, you know, and that truth telling in that sense is an enlightened, an enlightenment value that will always be a challenging thing to people whose Values are different than the Enlightenment.
6: One of the really disturbing things about Trump is that he seems to have these sort of para-paramilitaries online right. and actual budding paramilitaries in the streets to enforce his will against journalists and anybody else who crosses him. Did Nixon have those kinds of rank and file operatives out in the world enforcing his will, or is this a new development?
7: No, he actually, uh, he actually did have basically thugs, uh, doing, uh, that kind of intimidation for him, whether it was a physical intimidation, uh, in the case of, there was recently a a memo that was, uh, kind of brought to prominence. I think it might've been discovered in the archives, but it didn't basically say anything that we didn't already know that he was sending out people to rough up people like Daniel Ellsberg, who, you know, wasn't necessarily a journalist, but uh he was uh, persona non grata because he had, you know, leaked the Pentagon papers to journalists. He so was that journalist w- adjacent. Right. He was journalist adjacent. So, you know, in that case, you know, it was outright physical thuggery. But he also, Richard Nixon, uh, had a political enforcer named Chuck Colson, who was a really nasty guy. He said he would run over his own grandmother to reelect Richard Nixon. I mean, that's a quote who uh, was doing things like showing up in the offices of William Paley, who was the CEO of CBS and basically intimidating him with the power of the white house. He was going to people like Catherine Graham, who was the publisher of the Washington post and threatening the post with losing their licenses, which were very lucrative uh, to operate local television stations. If they didn't play ball and very early in the presidential Term of Richard Nixon in 1969, one of his then White House officials, who later became a uh, re-election campaign official, who went to jail, Jeb Stuart magruder for Watergate, wrote a very detailed memo. It's called the Shotgun and Rifle Memo, in which he laid out basically 12 ways to uh, use the power of the executive branch to intimidate. The press, and we had Roger Ailes, who also was a Nixon operative, uh, who was talking about coming up with some sort of independent media infrastructure that was loyal to the White House. And we had Patrick Buchanan, right, who's sure. uh, been playing this game for a very, very long time. And of course, was started his career as a journalist as an editorial writer, although one who was also a conduit for uh, smears uh, from Jagger Hoover against people like uh, Martin Luther King, Pat Buchanan you know, was talking about the same thing. We need to come up with our own think tanks. We need to come up with our own, uh, media institutions. So whether it was physical intimidation, uh, which we see evidence of from the Nixon white house or, uh, call it bureaucratic or legal image intimidation, this was serious business and it wasn't invented by Donald J. Trump.
2: Something that uh, Bernie said repeatedly when he was uh, running in the primary about our media was that the American media tends to deal with politics in one of two frames. I'm, I'm not quoting Bernie, I'm paraphrasing, but, but I think that this is probably the most accurate analysis of our media that I've seen, that I've heard, uh, you know, ever. Uh, this is outside of the discussion that we had earlier about consolidation of media and you know what all that means what a free press means in the context of the first amendment etc but bernie's point was that the that the media particularly the electronic media particularly television tends to deal with politics either as a sport or as a soap opera it's when they're dealing with it as is it is it a sport it's you know, who's winning, who's losing, who's ahead, who's behind, what's the horse race like. And frankly, this is, in my opinion, the worst part of American media, because what they try to do is always, in order to jack up their ratings to get more people watching, they've got to create a horse race. And in order to create a horse race, I mean, you know, look at Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton, right? Hillary Clinton's an incredibly qualified been around politics forever, knows what she's doing. Donald Trump, a buffoon. How could that be an even match? Well, it was an even match because of $2 billion worth of free television publicity by the networks given to Donald Trump to try to create a horse race so that everybody would be watching TV right up to the very end, plus so that the campaigns would have to throw a billion dollars into the corporate coffers of the big television networks in advertisements so that's the sports side of it the soap opera side of it is the who's up who's down right is steve bannon really upset that he's being called that he you know he's being characterized as the grim reapers donald trump really upset about that have there been too many what about sarah huckabee sanders you know is she is she too nice is she not nice enough what about uh you know uh Uh, I pick your person, right? Uh, You know, is is Steve Miller really a white nationalist or not? And what is that going to mean? None of this stuff has to do with the quality of your life tomorrow. None of this stuff has to do with the quality of uh, maybe the horse race stuff, because it ultimately decides who's our, who our leaders are. And, and I guarantee you, if it wasn't for a for-profit media landscape, Donald Trump would not be president. And maybe Hillary Clinton wouldn't be either. I mean, it's just, you know, everything would be different. And that's not to, to, to knock either one of them. It's just this is the, this is the world in which we are, we are operating. And back when we had the Fairness Doctrine, the media, when it talked about politics, had to talk about policy. Didn't have to. I mean, it was, well, yeah, it had to. You had to program in the public interest, which meant that you had to actually talk about the issues that impact people's lives. It doesn't impact my life if Steve Mnuchin and Steve Bannon don't like each other. Doesn't impact my life if John Kelly decides that he's he's going to 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 you know stop the pres stop Steve Miller from walking into the into the Oval Office whenever he wants. Doesn't affect my life at all, at least in any way that I know of. But it's the thing that the press wants to talk about because they want to do soap opera. People love watching sports. What are the what are the two main things that people watch on television? Sports and soap opera. And by soap opera, I don't mean just literally the soaps you know the 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 daytime uh dramas i'm not even sure they still do those i'm I'm guessing they probably do but you know even your regular evening programs right Uh, you know uh even like police procedurals and detective store you know bones and and uh uh, you know csi and you know those kind of shows very popular shows they all devolve into soap opera after the first year or so, and pretty soon it's all this character development, and who's having an affair with whom, and all this kind of... And thus, things like... And and so, so the media gets it, right? Soap opera sells. People want human drama. People love to gossip. And sports sells, because sports is a metaphor for war, and war is something that seems to be in our DNA. But the result of this is that we have basically content-free political discussions you can watch msnbc cnn fox news all day long for weeks and never have a clear understanding of what a piece of legislation contains what its consequences will be i mean occasionally you get somewhat of a larger picture we did this with health just a few few weeks ago but even then who the real players are, what's going on, what the agendas are, who's financing what and why, how it's going to play out, what the consequences of this public policy will be very very rarely discussed. And and that's a that's a serious problem.
1: This show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you, or more specifically, listeners like Sean S. and Lisa P., who both went above and beyond and signed up as professional protester-level members. So huge thanks to them, but also thanks to all members and donors who help keep the show going. Now, members get access to a members podcast feed that you can subscribe to just like any other podcast. That includes ad free versions of every episode, plus members only bonus content, including behind the scenes stuff, some extended conversations on topics that the main show touches as well. And as I've mentioned before, the vast majority of the funds that we need to run this show come directly from listener support, either through membership contributions on Patreon and PayPal and all of that or just by choosing to use our Amazon affiliate link when you shop on Amazon. It's amazing how much that helps. But you know, we also try to run some ads to fill in the rest of the gaps, and we work with a middleman company that helps sell those ads for us. And for reasons that are not clear at the moment, those have really been drying up recently, and we don't know when they're coming back. So we could go one of two ways. We could put in a lot of effort trying to sell ads ourselves, but what we would much rather do, and what we have been doing, is to put in a lot more time and effort into producing bonus content for the members and making sure that signing up is as easy as possible by switching over to Patreon because I would much rather be totally dependent on funds from people who actually want to support the show rather than advertisers. So whether you can only chip in a buck a month or 20, now is a great time to sign up and help us out not to mention receive instant access to all of those member benefits. So if you can spare the cash and the two minutes it takes to sign up, find us on Patreon or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com to get started.
8: Critique and the criticism of mainstream media is not is, is really at the monolith of the mainstream me- the media itself, not necessarily directed toward the people inside of it, correct? I mean, because I mean, for instance, there were 115 journalists killed last year just doing yep. their jobs. I mean, these are not... Many,
0: many of them were independent, uh, independent journalists, by the way, which we... This film is kind of a celebration of independent journalists. It's certainly not saying anyone who's working for, you know, a, a commercial uh corporate owned news agency is a bad person, of course not. I I worked for years for ABC News and NBC News. Um and and as I said, I I've, I've shown the film to to people who currently work for the New York Times and that kind of thing and they get it. I mean, it's it's not meant as an attack on them. If anything, it it might give them a little more ammunition to insist that their editor let them do work on good stories instead of uh, things they think, you know, maybe uh, softball stories or fluff pieces.
8: The difficulty with that is, I mean, you've got you've got an industry that has lost, you know, thousands and thousands of jobs. I I think some of the estimates are up to almost 40% of newspaper jobs have been, are just gone since what, 2007. Um, Only slightly, offset by the the rise in, in in digital only uh journalism but even still yeah. it, this is this is an industry um in in serious serious decline and most yeah. of the people who have been eliminated from from news organizations have been the people who are the most highly paid and you know the people who've put in 20 years yeah. who take who take all of that experience and knowledge institutional knowledge with them when they go And they're replaced by, you know, journalism grads, students who, uh, you know, who are all very well intentioned, but you know, all all very green and don't have the experience. Um, And then add on top Mm -hmm. of that the the pressures of the you know that 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 digital puts upon reporters, and they're doing basically two two and a half times what a reporter used to do.
0: I know, and investigative journalism, which as we all know is is the most time and money intensive because time is money and uh, the long term investigative projects which some newspapers used to do uh those are some of the first positions to go with cost cutting you know because they just can't afford to do that kind of journalism in they in just their, don't make any mind. money yeah yeah but again by by not you know the bottom line is what what should journalists and what should journalism be doing? You know, um, one of the things that should be doing is investigating governments because people need to know what their governments are doing and they need journalists to, to tell them that because they, the public doesn't have the time to, you know, everybody can't go down with a notebook and start digging into records and files and, and, uh, following money trails and, uh, you know, investigating and reporting critically on, on what their governments are doing at, at all levels, you know, local, state, provincial, federal. Um, so yeah, what's the answer? I mean, it, we need that kind of journalism. That's the only thing I know. And yes, there are tectonic shifts going on in the, uh, in the newspaper world and in the TV network world that, that are like everything is, it's, everything is in flux. And, um, I think we just have to put our money down, sometimes literally by supporting institutions that are doing independent investigative journalism and in some cases depending on donations, um, such as Democracy Now!, which is, a, is a great daily show, um, uh, that executive produced by Amy Goodman and hosted by Amy Goodman and and is is a forum a forum for some of the very best independent investigative journalists to, to come on and talk about uh their latest long-term projects people like Jeremy Scahill uh Matt Taibbi um Glenn Greenwald and many many other uh, outstanding investigative journalists you know that Amy provides a forum for them to come on and and uh you know you won't see them on CNN these people right um uh, or CBS but but Amy Goodman Democracy Now you can google it they've got a great website you can watch the show online uh it's it's a daily hour digest of what's going on in, in the world and and in the US and other com- you know the coverage of Canada where i live is is uh pretty good actually but i you know sh- that show depends on donations um, there There are other organizations like ProPublica uh, the nation Institute they all depend on donations and uh, I, I think that uh, that 's one way of of supporting um, journalists carrying on in the uh, in the tradition of i f stone
8: yeah, because clearly the other models are the the commercial models the advertising models that uh, most of journalism has been based on is um, Lacking at best, and uh really, if you're if yeah. you're if you're honest about it, it's just plain failing.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I'm not suggesting. I don't think Guy Stone would have suggested that people don't read the New York Times or you know don't read, um, or, you know, or don't don't watch CNN. I mean, I I do. I, I I access those to see what they can tell me, but I supplement that with other sources of of journalism that that. If you start doing that, you will start to see that you're getting stories uh, told from a different perspective, um, but nevertheless, you know, solid journalism and, and not just sort of um, solid opinion, but solid journalism, but from a different point of view than you're seeing in The New York Times or, or on CNN.
9: Esperando para ir, pero a
10: dónde no sé cómo saber a dónde ir, qué camino elegir. a recent talk with ProPublica, journalist Masha Gessen suggested that the Trump era could inspire reinvention and renewal for journalism, and maybe even a few new beats, specifically a language beat or a language watch. It's advice that's in keeping with Gessen's study of autocracies, like Russia, and in line with her widely shared piece to the New York Review of Books, Autocracy Rules for Survival, in which she warns that there will be an impulse to normalize, causing coverage and thinking to drift in a Trumpian direction. She saw that drift firsthand when she returned to post-Soviet Russia after years of working in the U.S.
4: It was almost a physical sensation how constraining the Russian language was because so much of it had been abused and so we couldn't use the language. To give you an example, words that were in any way connected with ideology. And I don't mean, you know, sort of communist words. I mean words like freedom. We had been saying for decades that the Soviet Union was the freest country in the world. There was a popular propaganda song that we sang as children. There's no country where a man breathes as freely as he does in the Soviet Union. So how do you use the word freedom when you've been using it to lie for all those years? Mm The fact is you don't. And the response that the first generation of Soviet journalists invented was to use very sort of choppy, business-like language that had no high concepts that reported just the facts this minute. Sort of thing.
8: Mm-hmm. It worked.
4: As an antidote to that abusive language, it worked. It was also hugely impoverishing because we couldn't discuss big things in small language.
10: In your piece on six rules for surviving an autocracy in the New York Review of Books, rule number three is institutions will not save you. And you note that it took Putin a year to take over the Russian media and four years to dismantle its electoral system. In Turkey, it happened faster. In Poland, it took less than a year. And you concede that American institutions are much stronger. We have checks and balances here. We have a stronger press. But you still said we need to stop thinking that America is so exceptional. And you've also suggested it's a failure of imagination to think that it can't happen here.
4: Right. Most Americans in the media said they didn't believe that there was even a possibility that Donald Trump would be elected president. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason for that disbelief was an inability to look around at the world and consider the possibility that the United States is part of a worldwide trend of reversal of democracy Mm -hmm. and a worldwide trend of right wing populists coming to power. If we look at European elections, European democracies falling like dominoes at this point, I think we would have a lot more concern. And I'm not saying they are exact parallels, but there's certainly always lessons to be learned from what's happening elsewhere.
10: Here's a great parallel that you wrote about. You quoted the chess champion Garry Kasparov recently, his metaphor about Putin and playing chess as a way to understand our media's relationship with Trump.
4: Yeah, so his metaphor when he first stopped playing chess and went into politics full-time, he said it's like playing chess with somebody who keeps knocking the the figures off the chessboard.
10: The papers failed to write the big story that he wasn't playing chess, the endless fact-checking is like saying, okay, she opened E2 to E4 and he knocked all the players off the chessboard. He knocked the bishop off the chessboard and knocked the knight off the chessboard. Right. In other words, fact-checking was like checking moves and we'd gone past that.
4: Right. When you have a candidate who's lying more than 90% of the time, then checking each one of his lies is probably not the best way to go. Probably the best way to go is to say, okay, so what is he trying to say? by lying 90% of the time. What is this new game that we're playing Mm -hmm. if we continue talking about games? But I think that this is where actually Putin and Trump are incredibly similar.
10: You have felt that they've been likened too often and that the idea that Putin is controlling Trump is completely overwrought, that Trump is, well, svayabrani, maybe as you would say, (laughs) well, he's himself.
4: I think that one thing that they do share is the cacophony of lies that they produce. And I think that the larger message there is I claim the right to say whatever the hell I please. That's a really important thing to understand, that the lying is the point. Not in the sense that Trump really wants you to believe that millions of people voted illegally. The point is I will say whatever the hell I want, and that is also a component of my power.
10: But you still want the media to call them out, right? I mean, you did take some comfort, for instance, in the New York Times' willingness to call a lie a lie. The headline that comes to mind is, Donald Trump clung to birther lie for years and still isn't apologetic. I mean, that's not a Trumpian direction. That's a new tack altogether.
4: Oh, absolutely. No, I, I completely agree with that. I don't mean don't call him out on his lies. I mean, tell the bigger story. So that headline is brilliant because it points to the bigger story of his being consistent in lying. The tack in the normalization tendency is to say, "Oh, you know, all of that stuff that he said was just campaign rhetoric, it's hyperbole, and now he's going to become a normal politician," which is, you know, wishful thinking, simple and clear. We have to believe the autocrat. Let
10: me just say that that was your first rule of surviving autocracy: believe the autocrat. So the question then is, well, how do you believe him if he keeps contradicting himself? When he takes so many positions on every issue, depending on his audience.
4: So two things. One is that his constant contradictions are a message in itself. And that message is part of my power lies in my ability to control reality. Once we understand that, we have to believe that, no, he's not going to become a normal politician. He is going to be creating this cacophony of nonsense precisely to undermine our ability to exist in a fact-based reality. We as journalists really need to be listening to that. The other thing is that he's actually been consistent on his sentiments, if not on the specifics. His anti-Muslim sentiment has been consistent. His racist sentiment has been consistent long before he even became a politician. Mm-hmm. His anti-immigrant sentiment has been consistent. And so when...
10: Might as well throw in his misogyny while you're at it.
4: Oh, <laughs> yeah, we can look and go with his misogyny. <laughs> His legitimation of violence in many different forms has been consistent. Mm -hmm. So there isn't much point in focusing on whether the wall is going to be all brick and mortar or partly chicken wire. Whether it's a metaphorical wall or a physical wall doesn't matter. What matters is that we're entering an era of a new level of animosity and hatred toward immigrants in this country.
10: As you told ProPublica in an interview, we have to figure out how to tell the truth and not just report the facts.
4: Right, and that's a huge question. I was just reading Marty Barron's, the editor of the Washington Post speech, when he was receiving the Christopher Hitchens Award. He said, well, everybody is asking, what do we do now? And the answer is simple, just do our jobs, and our job is to tell the truth as near as it can be ascertained. I was really disappointed because I thought it was glib because what I really would have wanted him to do is focus on the gap between facts and truth. We have to figure that out. We have to figure out sort of its size and its shape and how it keeps changing and how we bridge that gap. And just saying, you know, let's just do our job doesn't really go there.
11: I can't tell often when I'm trying to analyze what's happening if – sometimes I think I'm succumbing to hysteria. Sometimes I think that, you know, there is merit to the kind of anti-anti-Trump critique that the press has sort of lost its minds and the chattering classes have lost their minds about this guy. And and there are times when some small story blows up that later turns out not to be entirely true that, you know – feels like a point on the side of that framework. I don't think that framework is the correct one for interpreting this era, but there are moments where I I, I question whether there's more truth to it than I'm willing to let on. I also, sometimes, I oscillate between feeling that and feeling that I'm doing the opposite, that I'm sleepwalking through an absolute constant catastrophe and crisis that – my instinct for just psychological self-preservation wills me into seeing as everything is going to be okay, <laughs> when it's not, and I, I I spend all my time basically oscillating across that spectrum of belief about what we're experiencing, particularly when we're talking about nuclear diplomacy, right? There's some there's some you know bell curve of risk here where where we are <laughs> in the range of it or how I feel about where we're on the range sort of changes from day to day based both on his behavior and my own kind of mood, I guess. Let me
12: offer a a framework I'm toying with on the media side of this. I think the media goes too far on being offended by Donald Trump and does not go far enough on appreciating the tail risk danger of Donald Trump.
11: That is, I think that is a great, a great formulation. I I think that's quite true. I
12: think a lot of people, it's fair to look at the media and the media is real willing to be angry about stuff he does, to to take his tweets in the worst way you can, to um, hear, you know, things he's saying that are a joke but not treat them really as a joke, treat them as more seriously than he meant them, to look at little things that are happening in the administration or an anonymous leak and give it more credence than maybe it deserves. I think there's a real willingness to make Trump look bad or to feel offended by things he does that is – even though I think – he he is quite bad and you know people should feel offended i do think that the outrage meters are always turned up to 11 and so people give credence to things they shouldn't always give credence to or don't look for a generous interpretation when sometimes there is one but that said i think the media does not know how to does not even have mechanisms for dealing with appreciating the danger staying in a place of alarm there's a good video that we just released by, by carlos maza one of our strike through videos on the media and They were talking about what they call the this is fine bias or the normalcy bias in the media, the the tendency to try to talk about things in a normal way, uh, particularly after the first time they happen. And this is, I think, an an overwhelming bias. And so when you get into like day five of Trump tweeting with North Korea, you turn on Wolf Blitzer. And if you keep the sound off, it just everything seems normal. He could be talking about
11: anything. And I don't think right. And I, yeah. I mean, to 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 as someone who you know has a similar job to Wolf Blister and and in some ways not, not to sort of defend him, it's like I think that's probably true of me too. I and mean, I think I, it's true think of me, by the way.
12: I'm not. I didn't I mean. Need to I,
11: I, no, no. no I just that. think like part of it is that like it's it's <laughs> it's like the Spinal Tap thing, right? It's like it's like well, this goes to eleven. Like the the we are all playing with speakers that only go to ten. So you go to ten. And then everyone's ears adjust and you feel like there's no 11. <laughs> so it's like you come out and you say he's tweeting about war with North Korea. He's tweeting about possible nuclear war. Like that's what he's doing right now. This is insane and reckless. And then day, it's like he's still tweeting about <laughs> war with North Korea from his freaking golf course in Bedminster, New Jersey, from the golf club he owns. He's in the golf club he owns. He just got back from 18 holes, which they bizarrely, half-assedly tried to hide. But we saw on Instagram from the bro that hit the links with him. And now he's back and he's probably watching TV and he's tweeting threats in North Korea. And it's like, I totally agree with you. I think that's a really good framework of like too easily offended, not sufficiently attuned to the dangers about the sort of general vibe of the error. And part of it is just like, it is an amazing attribute of human beings how they can adjust to anything Uh, it's something that always strikes me reading any chronicle of different ages in history or particularly war reporting the things that people are able to accommodate themselves to are remarkable and in some ways it's the great superpower of human beings i mean this is the the species that can live everywhere on the fricking planet from like the blazing equator <laughs> to like the the tundra of Siberia you know this is these are these are people that like managed to settle the south pacific with islands thousands of miles from each other and the superpower is you could just ac- like acclimate to anything and that it's just a deep part of our human nature that we're fighting against it's not even just like an institutional bias in the news it's just like that's the way humans are <laughs> like you just you adjust
1: We've just heard clips today, starting with the Tom Hartman program, talking with Christina Vandenhovel of The Nation magazine about the need for the media to step it up in the age of Trump, a TED Talk by Laura Setrakian suggesting three ways to fix a broken news industry, The Breach discussed why Trump's media vendetta is scarier than Nixon's, Tom Hartman discussed the media's impulse to talk about politics as either a sport or a soap opera. We Are Here, spoke with the director of the documentary All Governments Lie, about separating the human element from the corporate element of the media. On the media, talked with Russian expert Masha Gessen about the impulse to normalize that which is profoundly abnormal. And finally, we just heard Chris Hayes on The Ezra Klein Show admitting to his own natural tendency to normalize our circumstances. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
13: Hi, Jay. This is Dallas from Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, You haven't had an episode on gun violence yet about uh, what went on in Vegas, what'll be last night. I'm making this call on Monday night. I just wanted to give some fighting words for progressives out there. The conservatives and Republicans, I do not use those terms interchangeably, though you may, are going to say... Just like they always say, that this is not the time to talk about gun violence. This is not the time to talk about gun control. Now they said the same thing after Sandy Hook. They said the same thing after Aurora. They said the same thing after Fort Hood, and they're going to say it after this. So what I want—the message I want to leave to progressives and Democrats and the left in general—is that when they say that. You need to shout them down. You need to ask, just as we asked all those other times, despite the horrible nature of the fact that we have to do this every time this happens. No matter how difficult it is, we have to keep fighting. Because if we do not, then, the, then nothing will happen. The only thing, and this is something that gets said all the time, the only thing that's required for evil to succeed is for good men to do nothing. Well, we must not be silent in the aftermath of this tragedy. We must not listen when the right says that we, oh, this is not the right time to talk about gun control and gun violence. If not now, when? What will it take? It may not be the popular stance, but just like we've been holding our representatives accountable for standing up for Medicare for all and other strong progressive causes, we can't give up the fight on gun control just because the right wants us to. Thanks for doing everything you do, Jay. Have a good one and keep fighting everybody.
14: Hey Jay, it's Alan, your member from Connecticut calling in with regards to your call for action for Medicare for All. And my thoughts on that was to use Stance, the app, and take a stance on Medicare for All. Considering the recent events in Las Vegas, however, I think I'm going to push that back a week and make a stance on gun control this week. I don't think that the Medicare for All will be heard this week regardless. Um, I'll be sure to put it in my calendar to pick it up next week so that it doesn't sit there and get forgotten. Um, But I am going to call for gun control this week. So that's that's what I'm going to do in addition to liking and supporting your Facebook page and posts with regards to Medicare for all and so forth. I do know and I've spoken about this before. New York has a similar type of health plan for New York. But I think that the Medicare for all is a stronger proposal overall. Anyway, thanks. That's my two thoughts. Thanks and my hot thoughts and hopes for anybody that's been impacted by Las Vegas. And everyone, stay awesome. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling again with just a little addition there. When people are calling in to their senators and taking uh, an action on something like that, I would encourage, if appropriate, to include your kids. Have them just watch you do that, whether it's picking up the phone or using the stand app, have them see the action you're taking. Especially when you have something like what's happening now in Vegas, if you're calling your senators about gun control, it's helpful to them to see that action and that you are doing something and taking something. It brings some comfort to them. It gives them some hope as well as it does it for you as well. So anyway, just just a thought there and improving our our younger lives and trying to build a better world one person at a time. Thanks and stay awesome.
9: Hey Jay, this is Jonathan from Louisville, Kentucky. I'm a long time listener. This is my first time calling. I want to preface this by saying that I'm a Naval architect. And while the Jones act affects me, I also think that I can offer a unique perspective that many of your listeners may not be aware of. So One thing to keep in mind about the Jones Act is that it helps stop what are called flags of convenience, where people who may own a ship in the U.S. or places in Europe may instead register their vessel under other flags like Panama or Liberia. And in fact, over 50 percent of vessels are registered under these flags of convenience. And one of the reasons they do this is to skirt worker protections and environmental regulations the vessels that operate under these flags are instead subject to say Panama's uh, environmental regulations and their worker protection. Many of these vessels employ people for three to five thousand dollars a year and they have very poor working conditions and work very long hours. Uh, the Jones Act only affects shipping between U.S. ports so uh, many countries around there could still ship to uh puerto rico even with the jones act in place because it doesn't affect international shipping and while i do agree with this uh temporary measure i think that long term the jones act is still a good policy that we should consider or keep in mind these things as well thanks love the show bye
1: Thanks for listening everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now first a quick response to the listener Dallas who we just heard from. He said that, you know, it may not be the popular position to be in favor of gun control. That's not actually true. Uh, gun control actually is the popular stance by a long shot. I think even Republican gun owners favor some degree of common sense gun control law, and so don't shy away from suggesting gun control, because chances are, whoever you're talking to, if they don't work for the NRA or a gun manufacturer, they're probably going to agree with you, at least to some extent. And secondly, I, this is my comment on today's topic, and but it's sort of a short one it's just this to suggest that you start paying for things whether you had the internet introduced to you later in your life or whether you've grown up with it and you can't remember a time before it the vast majority of things on on the internet and that the internet provide whether it be just a, you know a website or an app for your phone so much of it is free that we've begun to think that things are supposed to be free and That's not actually how it works, and as we heard in today's show, when you try to make things free and just supplement them purely with advertising, it breaks down terribly in a lot of different ways, some of them predictable, some unpredictable. So My suggestion is, for so many reasons, start paying for things, whether it be your email, so that... You're actually receiving a service and you're a customer of that service rather than you being a product that the email uses to serve ads to. That means you're not the customer. You're the product being sold ads so that you can then go buy stuff. There are email services out there for 5 bucks a month. And it completely frees you from that whole world of having your emails sort of read by an algorithm to see what you might be interested in and have ads served to you that way. You should just get out of that world. Same with apps. Yeah, maybe the app that's free does basically the same stuff as the app that's ninety nine cents, but it's probably going to serve you ads. Same same idea, basically. And going beyond that, the app sometimes like the app that costs ten dollars. You know, it's 10 times better than the one that costs a buck. And making it 10 times better costs money. You know, those are developers who are trying to make a really high-quality product. And so maybe you would really be better off buying the quality that you want in your products. And then the last thing is media. I mean, that's what today's show is all about and what got me thinking down this road. It's time to start paying for media. There's the old saying be the change you want to see in the world. And I say, be willing to pay for the world you want to see. And I know that's obviously a self-serving statement for me, me to make. I am one of these people who is hoping that you will pay for my services so that I'm not totally dependent on advertising. But it's not just about supporting the people who make the product. It's about making the product better. Shows like this one, or like David Packman and The Majority Report, and The Young Turks, and you know all of these... Uh, Shows depend on listener donations for two reasons. One, we can't make enough money on advertising to support ourselves. And two, we wouldn't want to make enough money on advertising to support ourselves purely without support from the audience. Because when you have support from the audience, it's incredibly liberating. It frees you to make whatever show you want to make. And then the people will support you if they like what you're making. And if they don't like what you're making, they'll stop supporting you. It's a great system. So whether it be shows like this one or the ones I mentioned or Democracy Now that was talked about on the show, start paying for the media you want to hear because that's how you maintain a healthy media that actually does what the media is supposed to do. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts. The call in line again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on patreon.com. That is absolutely how the program survives and thrives and remains free of corporate overlords. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode... All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, at outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.